Maybe you've noticed this as well. There are really two ways to live in this world. And I want you to do something with me right now. I know it's 8 o'clock, you're waking up, it's, it's cloudy, but seriously, I want you to participate, stretch a little bit. Um, reach out your hands with me like this. And your left hand, and I'll even do this to help you, close your left hand. Some of you are saying you're closing your right hand. I'm, I'm, I'm bleeding. So, so close your left hand. Notice the difference. Just clench that fist and keep this hand open. These are really two different ways of living. And, and just to, to connect with this a little bit, that there is two ways to live life. One way is where we hang on to things as tightly as we can, and the other way is to let things go. And if you know where I'm going with this is to be generous. And I do believe this is that all of us, we long to be generous people. There, there's something admirable about being known as a generous person. We, we don't want to be known as one who clenches on and holds on to everything. And I mean, even just clenching the fish, you can feel the tension in that. And, and it makes sense. I, I've known this, the, noticed this is that generous people are generally a lot happier than people that hang on tightly. There's often a lot of uh, anxiety that goes with that. There's something about being generous. Uh, when I first started dating my wife, Shane, before she was my wife and she was my girlfriend, one of the things I found very attractive about her was she said to me, we were just talking one day, what do you want written as an epitaph on your tombstone one day and someday? And she says, I wanted to say she was a great tipper. And I'm like, huh? She says, you know, so many people, and she worked as a server for a few years, she says, so many people don't tip well. She's like, I would love to be known. And she says, what I really mean is, I want to be a generous person. I want to be known as being generous. That was very attractive to me. Uh, not the only thing that was attractive to me and my wife, but it was cool just to hear her have that spirit of longing to be generous, if, if you know what I'm saying, that. Something about that. Now, we live in a day and age where that is maybe what we long to be, but what actually comes a little easier for all of us and in our culture is not this, this. Um, they did a study, and, and well, actually, before I share this, uh, I remember learning this when I was maybe 10 years old, 9 years old. My brother, uh, for Christmas one year, bought me a, an aquarium. And we went to the pet shop after we got the aquarium for, for Christmas. And he helped me pick out some fish. And my brother's 11 years older than me. So he drove me down there. And, and it was really neat because he had an aquarium. I loved it. And I was all excited to have fish and have an aquarium and take care of it. And kind of my first personal pet, as it were, outside of other things that our family had, but to have my own fish. And one thing I, I learned early on was one day I was feeding the fish and the top accidentally came off of the fish food and the entire bottle of fish food went into the tank. Now I panicked like, oh no! But then I thought, hey, wait a minute, this may be actually a more efficient way of taking care of my fish because now I don't have to feed them for the next couple months. Well, guess what I learned? I, I know when it taught me this, I didn't realize it. Do you know that the fish died within a day or two? Do you know why? You, fish aren't smart enough to know when to stop eating. And the fish ate and ate and ate and ate and it killed them. It, it did. And, uh, you know, lest we, we think we're smarter than fish, 
Uh, there were studies done on this as well. They, they actually, um, Stanford did a study some years ago uh, on, on eating, and they asked French people, people from France, uh, how much is enough when it comes to eating? And, and they responded by saying, we, we stop eating when we're full. They asked Americans the same question. You know what Americans said by and large? Most Americans responded, I know when it's time to stop eating when my plate is empty. Totally different approach, isn't it? I stop when I'm full or I stop when the plate is empty. So they did a study on this. Based on that research, they went further and they set up a, a lab where they invited people in and these people ate soup at a table together and uh, half of the people at the table ate soup that basically was a regular bowl of soup. But the other half had bowls of soup that were actually self-feeding from underneath and kept filling as people ate. And they discovered that those who had soup bowls like that, as you could imagine, ate more than twice or three times, even four times as much as those who had one bowl that never self-depleted or self-filled. Uh, interesting. And, you know, what's true about eating is also true about stuff and materialism and money for a lot of us. I think we know this is our experience in life is that it never seems to be enough. You would think where we live at such a time as this in uh, the United States, and we are still uh, the wealthiest nation in the world. 60% of the world's wealth resides in the United States. And, and we happen to live in one of the wealthiest areas of this nation, in this area in which we reside in. It, it's a pretty impressive thing when you realize this. And yet you look at statistics. And across our nation, I, I found this recently. Let's show this one. 84% um, of Americans give away 0 to 1% of their income. Um, so of every dollar they make, it's like a, maybe a penny or less than a penny. 84 out of 100 people, that's their giving pattern when it comes to being generous. And, and we live in the world's wealthiest nation, having 60% of the world's wealth and only about 6% or less of the population of the world. It, it, it's just staggering to think about this a little bit. And, and, and just in fairness, 3% of Americans give at the level, level of a tithe. And um, biblical tithe, get this in several places throughout Scripture and Old Testament, it, is uh, God had established that all things were from Him. And, and He asked His people to honor Him and worship Him by simply giving the first fruit of all that they had, 10%. If, if they were growing apples, they would give one apple out of every ten. That first apple would be an offering and a blessing to God, a tithe, a ten percent. And um, what the research shows is about three percent of Americans give at the level of, of a tithe. Um, we, we did an interesting survey on this. We were studying some uh, statistical data of the area, and we found that while we are one of the wealthier areas, not just of Michigan, but in the nation, um, giving patterns, even in this area, based on census data and other stuff that, that's out there, is, is fascinating. Um, among those that, that maybe give on the level of tithe and, and are active worshipers or, or churchgoers, it also revealed that most of them, um, when it comes to church, is like third or fourth on their list of charitable organizations they support. In fact, in this last year, 
Would you guess what the number one organization or organizations that were supported, the number one giving thing in this area was? Anybody want to guess? Political parties. Number one thing. I mean, it was like triple that which was given to churches in our area. Um, Opens my eyes. I, I pray it opens yours too. Are we generous? And are we being generous to things that really truly at the end of the day and really at the end of eternity matter? found this recently too, kind of helpful I think, is when you look at our lives and, and how we, we have stuff, right? And, and I remember when Shane and I got married and we were at, I was a seminary student, she got really our first real job, you might say. She was a teacher in Fort Wayne and making a salary. I mean, it was like, whoa! We have so much. We're so excited. And what did we do? We signed the contract on a one-bedroom apartment. And, and we're like, man, we are living in style. We have arrived. We realized what we have. And, and we were so grateful and thankful for it. And, and a couple months later, we visited a, another couple from the seminary, a little older than us. And they invited us out to dinner at their house. And we're like, oh, yeah, we came. And so we find out they're renting a house while they're at seminary. And they had, like, multiple bedrooms and an office. And, and like, wow, it's, man, that would be really nice to have a house. And, and so when we came back from Vicarage, guess what we did? We rented not, a, not an apartment. We rented a house because we needed more space, right? There's something about a house. And, and you know, it happens with cars. We're like, wow, well, I got this brand new car. Oh, it's so nice. And then... The new model comes out like, man, I wish, wish I had that one. And it's kind of like this. You got have, and then there's always what you want. And, and we have this ongoing life reality of what we have and what we want or wish we had. And, and that gap that often rests in between is what you might call a discontentment zone for many people. We say in our lives, if only we had that then we'd be happier, and, and then we'd be more content, and, and then we could be more generous, right? It, it's always that mindset. But the thing is, is the reality is, is if, if God blesses us to then get what we want, uh, it, it just all shifts up, doesn't it? And then we have, and then what happens? The line just moves. It's always elusive. Am I the only one that's experienced this? Apparently, no one else here has, um, it's 8 o'clock. I'll give that to you. Um, but the discontentment zone is living in the ongoing discontentment. If only we had that. Um, there's a guy by the name of Zacchaeus. Let's just keep that up there for a while. And in Luke chapter 19, it's the only gospel that records this event. Many scholars think that, uh, that Zacchaeus himself may have shared his personal story with Luke later on, because there's just so many neat details of his story. Uh, maybe you remember the story, and you maybe remember the song. Um, you know how it goes? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Yeah, I, I remember that song, and remember thinking as a kid, nobody wants to be a wee little man. I even knew that as a kid. That, that's not something you want. And, and as Luke's Gospel shares this event, is Zacchaeus though apparently a very short in stature man, is, as the scripture tells us in Luke 19, is that he was a very wealthy man. He was a wealthy chief tax collector, which means he wasn't just a tax collector working for the Roman government. He was a chief among the tax collectors. 
And, and we find out that, and you think about how this all works, the Romans take over Israel, and rather than sending everybody out as refugees, they keep the people there. They have this brilliant idea. Let them stay where they are, but let's tax them. And, and then they raise up tax collectors among the people, and, and, and these tax collectors were hated because often the way it would work is if you worked as a tax collector, someone would come to you and say, listen, I know you know me. We live in the same town. You know my business and everything, but please, we're, aren't we on the same team? Can't you hold this back from the Romans? I mean, Please be fair, and, and tax collectors would then say, you know what, I won't tell Rome, but here's the deal. You've you got to pay me for that. You've got to pay me to be quiet, and, and that's how they made their money, was off of those kind of bribes and, and those payments, and on top of that, often then they would tell Rome anyway, and so tax collectors were hated. How much more so a chief among tax collectors who's a tax collector in charge of other tax collectors? Zacchaeus was a very, very wealthy man. And we find out that one day Zacchaeus finds out Jesus is coming. He does what wealthy men wouldn't have done. He runs, which first of all, you don't run when you're a successful man in those days. You'd have to hike up your, your skirt, your, your, your robe, and, and you just didn't do that. He ran to a tree. He climbs a tree. And uh, I don't know the last time I saw a really wealthy, successful man climbing a tree. You, just, you don't see that very often. Um, it, it might rip the suit. You know, it's just one of those things. And Zacchaeus climbs a tree because he wants to see Jesus. And, and Jesus walks along, and you maybe know the story. Jesus pauses, stops, looks up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, I'm staying at your house tonight. And as far as we know, they'd never met. This is one of those moments that God has arranged, and Jesus being God knows Zacchaeus' heart, knows what's about to happen And one of these moments. And it's the only place in the whole New Testament that it says that everyone there muttered. You know, often we have the Pharisees muttering or a group of people muttering. Or In this case, everybody in the crowd muttered. And why is that? Because tax collectors were sinful and nobody liked them. They hated them. And Jesus says he's going to stay at this guy's house. What is he thinking? And we find out that Jesus goes to the home of Zacchaeus And we don't know what kind of conversations there were on the way, but Zacchaeus, as a wealthy man, would have had a pretty amazing spread to show. And you maybe could think, maybe Jesus was talking along. Remember Zacchaeus, how'd you start out? How'd you get to be so successful? And Zacchaeus maybe said, well, you know, there was this time and I got out of college and I could afford my first donkey. And it was so exciting. I finally didn't have to walk everywhere and I got that. But, you know, after a while I realized, you know, it's just a donkey because I noticed other people were riding around on, on camels. And camels kind of like the Hummer of our day. You know, this is incredible all-terrain vehicle and, and very expensive. And, you know, you had to have a certain amount to have a camel. And, 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 and then he's like, and I was living in a tent and that wasn't enough. And so we, we got a, a bigger place and I got married and family and everything. And, and then uh, uh, I've settled here and like, wow, this, this is something. And, and we don't know what conversation went on. But we know this. Zacchaeus was not expecting for Jesus to single him out. Zacchaeus was hated. Zacchaeus very likely was lonely. Zacchaeus, though successful, it's pretty clear, probably was very empty and realized something was missing in his life. An encounter with Christ, with Jesus, it changes him. 
Because that night over dinner, it says that Zacchaeus stood up, which I always think is funny because he's short, right? It's kind of like, Zacchaeus, are you standing up? Okay, you can stand up. No, he, he, he did. He stood up at the table. You wouldn't do that. And, and he, he makes this declaration. He says, I, I give away half of all that I own to those in need. And, and anyone I've ever wronged, I, I'll pay back four times as much. And I'm thinking if his wife is in the room, she's thinking, uh, honey, don't you think we maybe should have talked this over a little bit before you make this declaration? Or, or the kids, they're hearing this, well, does this mean, can I still get my own camel when I get my license, you know? This is radical. And for Zacchaeus, a resurrection has happened that is really manifested in his actions, but something greater is happening. His heart has changed. And, and Jesus makes a declaration in that moment. I tell you the truth, salvation has come to this house tonight. Now, what's Jesus saying? Is he saying that Zacchaeus, because he's giving all his money away, has bought his way into heaven, therefore salvation has come because Zacchaeus has paid for it? Is that what he's saying? If that's what you think, you've totally missed the point. Or is Zacchaeus now good enough to deserve salvation? No, you've missed the point. Rather, Jesus is saying the fruit, which Jesus talked about elsewhere, What only God could do was manifested in Zacchaeus' life in response to the love and a relationship in the presence of Christ. Zacchaeus responds, and it's radical, huge, 50% plus of all that he has. It's kind of like this, change this graph a little bit. What Zacchaeus realized in that moment is he has all of this, and in his mind, and his heart, he had to dial that back and to realize it's not about discontentment zones and what he wishes he had more, rather than realizing what he has and being content with that, but then pushing it back to realize, what do I really need versus what I really want? And what that made room for, in his case, 50%, left room for a generosity zone and an incredible joy for this man. Think about that today. And if you think about in your life and and living like this or like this or living like this, what zone are we in? Are we so busy and stressed out all the time just trying to hang on to what we have where there's really little room for this? Or or maybe it's it's kind of more like kind of like this. Are we generous people? Are we known for being generous? Now, I, I want to just open Scripture further with you because we read what I think is one of the most beautiful and profound places in Scripture on giving, and it's in 2 Corinthians 9, and, and this fast-forwards us. Jesus goes the way of the cross, dies in our place, rises again, and brings new life, and this resurrection that transforms God's people and transforms that early church, and we start to see glimpses of what that looks like as it has its way in that reality, a new reality among God's people. And we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to turn there with you, and we're going to look at this through the lens of an acronym. I want to throw up there. What does it look like to be truly a giver or one who is generous versus one who is, is not? And, and, and Paul gives us this beautiful picture of this. And in 2 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 6, and I invite you to either take out the worship folder or open the scripture with me in the, in the worship Bibles because we're going to spend a few moments here with what we remain in time here. The 2 Corinthians 
chapter 9, beginning with verse 6. And Paul says this. First of all, I'm going to put a word up there. It's guaranteed. Here's what I mean when it comes to giving to our Lord. Remember this, Paul says, by the Spirit. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And uh, we'll come back to that next verse, but skip into verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now you read this and you got to ask yourself, is, is God laying something out here when it comes to giving that is really risky? I mean, if you read this as a business plan and, and you knew this is coming from a source of this is how it's going to go, is this a, a report of scarcity or or abundance. What's the language? It's abundance. Um, and the realization that giving to God is an amazing guarantee. It's when, when God grabs a hold of our heart and, and we let go. Now, there's an exception to this. I want to point this out to you. Um, some of you have heard me share this before. I have a bag of grass seed in my, in my garage that it, it does not grow. Um, do you know why? I've had it for a couple years now. And even a couple years ago, it didn't grow then, and I'm realizing it doesn't grow now. Um, it's really frustrating. That bag of grass seed is not growing. Do you know why? I haven't planted it. It seems obvious, but it's true. If we keep the grass in the bag, it's not going to grow. Paul's saying... Remember this, whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. It's basic math here. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Does that mean that if, if we give, uh, you know, a million dollars, if we had a million dollars, God's going to give you two million dollars back? He might. But that's not also the promise here. That, that's, it can happen. I've seen it happen for people that God blesses them beyond anything they could ever imagine. Sometimes the blessings come back that way. Sometimes the blessings come by realizing that generosity zone and the peace and the joy that flows out of that to not be gripped and possessed by our stuff. Where God allows us the freedom to experience joy with open hands and a heart that is changed in a different place. Guaranteed. Number two is Giving is intentional. Biblical giving is intentional. Notice what verse 7 has to say on this one. Verse 7. Um, each man or each woman should give what he has decided in his heart to give. What, what do you think that means? To give what you've decided in your heart. Uh, I'll tell you what it, it, I'm convinced it doesn't mean. And I, and I think this happens a lot. We get busy. And, and we love God, we, we love relationship, we, we love our, his church, his ministry, we love all that stuff, but we get busy and, and maybe you come to worship and, oh, that's right, forgot all about the offering, left my checkbook at home, and, or, uh, or we're like, hey, what I got left over, I'll just kind of give that, and, and there's no really thought to it. A lot of folks 
get into that mode of there's no forethought to it or prayer involved or deciding in our heart what we are to give. Um, I'll tell you, for our family, uh, my wife and I, we, we take a moment every once in a while to reassess uh, are we where we think we believe God has led us to be in terms of our giving. And we do tithe based on Malachi 3 and this incredible promise. The only place in the, in the scripture where it says trust and test God is in the area of giving. And we have, since we've been married, tithe. Give, we give 10% of all that we, we get. And sometimes that surprises people because they assume, well, if you work in church work, you don't, you don't actually give. Um, I, seriously, some people are like, really? You give offerings? Yeah, we do. And it's part of our worship too. And but we've always found that's where God has led us to be tithers, and we always kind of push that to try and go beyond that and, and prayerfully say, Lord, where would you lead us, given all that you blessed us with? Um, but it's intentional. We pray about it. We talk about it. And, and we've also found early on that we would forget. And sometimes weeks, even months would go by where we forget the checkbook, and now we don't use the checkbook for anything. How many of you still use checkbooks for everything? A lot of you do, a lot of you don't. And, and we found for us, a way for us to give our first fruits back to God is uh, we signed up with our bank, just like we pay our, bank, our bills online. Uh, our first bill that we have lined up at every pay period is a gift to the Lord that gets sent directly to St. John through our bank. That's how we've done it. Other people in our church have done the same thing. Easy way, but it's a way to honor God is with our first fruits. And that way too, forever out of town or, or gone, we're still giving our first fruits in our absence. Um, some others have found you can go on our website under Celebrate, and there's a, a giving click there. You can go in there. You can set up automatic uh, giving the same way um, uh, through the website. It, it's just a way to honor God and be intentional in our giving. Um, hopefully that's helpful. Um, voluntary. It's the next one. It's voluntary. Notice what, what Paul says in the second part of that same verse, in verse 7. He says, each one should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a grumpy giver. No. God loves a cheerful giver. And, and he goes back to that same understanding that when's the last time you met somebody who's generous who's grumpy? And I, I would just share this. If, if you give grudgingly and I got to write and I got to give this. No, just don't give it, please, because you've missed the point. And the reality is that kind of attitude or mindset probably affects other areas of your life. You probably aren't a very generous person. It affects you. You, you hold on tightly. God loves a cheerful giver. It's about letting go and realizing ultimately belongs to the Lord. And where is God moving in your heart to be cheerful in our giving and in our offering? It's voluntary. Nobody forces it. You know, the, we say you must, we don't make everybody sign a contract. You must give at this rate and please hand over your W-2s so we know that you're being faithful. We don't do that. Some churches actually do that. Blows me away. That to me is very legalistic. Um, and and I, I've heard of that. And like, no, <laughs> that's not how it works. But it is voluntary as we respond in, in faith and in trust. Um, next one is, it's eternal. It's eternal. Notice what verses 12 through 15 say. This service, Paul says, that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you proved yourselves, 
men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies, here it is, your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. When we give, it's part of our confession of faith. It's not like we say, okay, I, I'm a believer in Jesus and, oh yeah, but I don't really give. I don't believe in that. No, it's, it's actually part of our witness is our level of generosity. Jesus says, I, 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 you're called to bear fruit, fruit that will last. It's part of our calling and, and apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But with Christ, all things are possible because we have a God of generosity, a God of abundance. Not only eternal, that it makes a difference. It's different than... Um, Think about this. You know, if I give to cancer research, is that a worthy cause? Well, of course it is. I mean, I've lost people in my own family who have died of cancer. Cancer research is a wonderful thing. But here's the reality. Even if we get a cure for cancer, the mortality rate is still going to be 100% for all people, right? What really matters? What is eternal that makes a difference not just for today or tomorrow or the next few years. What makes an eternal difference? It's faith in Jesus. And God's work does that. Not only eternal, but it's also relational. Paul ends this section by saying this, And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Notice how he goes back to thanks be to God for his indescribable gift because God in his relationship with us who has opened up his hands in sacrifice and love to us has given us the gift of life here. And it's something that is meant to be shared in community with one another. Um, two months ago, I wrote my first stewardship letter in five years of being your pastor. Um, that's pretty exciting because I've never heard of a church where I've never had to write letters on this stuff because we haven't needed to. And, and it finally happened. We were pacing off a budget in our offerings, and, and two months ago we were off by $74,000. It was like, oh, no, what, how did we get here? And, and wrote a letter, sent it out via email, and guess what happened? People started to respond. It's crazy. I know. It's crazy. People started upping their giving, increase, increasing the pace. And, and a few months later, we got to give an update. Hey, we're gaining ground on this thing, and, and let's keep it going. And guess what happened? People keep responding. And, and today, with a month left in the ministry year, I think we got like 19000 to make up yet in, in our budgeted offering shortfall. I believe we're going to make that. But I keep thinking, why stop there? What would happen? What could we do as God's people to make a difference beyond ourselves in this community as God's people called to be St. John Lutheran Church in school? What would that look like? I challenge you. Um, as pastor, I used to be afraid to talk about this, but now I get it. It's, it's, this is no way to live. What does it mean to be known as people who are generous and that generosity that flows from the love of Christ lived out in our life with the joy of peace in Jesus? that opens our hands to realize it all belongs to him. One final thought. In AA, there is kind of a parable that is often told of a man who wanted to be free of his addiction and wanted to be sober for life. And he approached God and he says, I, I, I long to be sober. And God said, give me all your money. And, and the man took out his wallet and he says, this is all I have. And he handed over $50. And then the man said of God, he's like, but, but how am I going to put gas in my car? 
And, and God says, oh, you have a car? You didn't tell me about the car. Uh, give me your car as well. And the man says, okay, I'll give you my money and I'll give you my car, but how am I going to get to work, to my job? And the Lord says, oh, you have a job? You didn't tell me about the job. Uh, you need to give me your job too. And the man says, but if I give you my money and my car and my job, how am I going to pay my mortgage? And the Lord says, oh, you have a house? You didn't tell me about your house. I, I, I want you to give me your house as well. And the man says, well, if I give you my house and, and my job and, and all my money and my car, how am I going to support my family? And the Lord says, oh, you have a family. You didn't tell me about your family. I, I want you to give me your family as well. And, and the man was just perplexed and overwhelmed, like, Lord, how... How could I ever make it if, if I give you my family and my house and my job and my car and my money? And the Lord says, well, here's how it'll work. Every day you can wake up and I'm going to give you my money to use. I'm going to give you my car. You can drive it anytime you want. I'm, I'm going to give you my job to work and, and provide for paying your mortgage on uh, on really which is my house paid in full because of what I've done for you. And not only that, I'm I'm going to let you live with your family and care for them as uh, they belong to me. And what you're going to experience is you don't have to hold on so tightly anymore because all of it belongs to me. And you're going to be released with joy and freedom beyond anything you've ever experienced before. I love that story because God has given us that gift. It all belongs to him. And what a great way to live. And what a great way to be known, not just as individuals, but as his people here at St. John. People of generosity. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I know this is one of those topics that sometimes is really hard and difficult and challenging. And yet it's one of those topics that when you have your way in our hearts and our minds, greater freedom comes by way of joy and peace than we could ever imagine. Lord, may we not be people who live in the discontentment zone any longer, but rather people who realize how blessed we are to have what we've been given on loan from you to steward it while we're here, but to free us up with the generosity zone and the freedom to live open-handed, to share, to care and love as we've first been loved. Lord, what a gift it is, this side of the resurrection, to experiencing that joy in our hearts and our lives beyond measure today. We can outgive you, Lord. We can never outgive you. But may we try as your people, as we step out in faith day by day, trusting in you in all things. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.